0: You are listening to Plenary Session. This episode 17 is a bonus episode. This is a two-part lecture series I give every year to the Hematology Oncology Fellows about the interpretation of oncology clinical trials. I gave this over two weeks in the last month. The first part turned out very well. I think listeners will really enjoy it. It is almost 100% intact. Um, lightly edited to omit a few comments by the fellows uh, for the sake of their privacy. The second half was a more spirited discussion. We really went back and forth. We pulled out the board and we we drew some things out. We really tackled some problems and we talked through some concepts. Um, Much of that dialogue has been edited out, so I'm not sure how much you'll get out of it. But at the same time, I said, you know, just put it out there and we'll see if you like it. Um, Again, this is a bonus episode. We'll be back with more Plenary Session, but hope you enjoy this. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. Thank you. All right, we'll get started. Uh, This is a two-part series we do every, I don't know, sometime during the year, but hopefully early on in the year, called Interpretation of Cancer Clinical Trials. In terms of disclosure, I'm the author of this book, which is why I'm fabulously rich. And uh, we put out this podcast called Plenary Session, which appears at least once a week. Like all good disclosures, it is free advertisement. And uh, my work is funded by this nonprofit foundation. Okay. I think um, when you talk about a clinical trial, especially in a field like oncology, um, I think it's so easy to come to the bottom here and think about the abstracts and publications. But you should remember that at every juncture in an oncology clinical trial, there were some decisions that had to be made. So one, trials really start with what is the clinical question we want to answer? What is the question that you you want to address? Then you think about how would you design and conduct such a clinical trial? collect the clinical trial data, and then from the clinical trial data, it's really like, um, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of pages of data that's somehow condensed into, what, a 350-word abstract or a 3,000-word article. So I think what people forget is that there is biases that exist along this spectrum that you should kind of be looking out for. When it comes to the publication space, There's bias in the decision and timing of reporting data. You know, typically negative data is reported a little bit later than positive data. There's bias in the endpoints emphasized. We would like to see primary endpoints emphasized, but sometimes you see secondary endpoints. There are changes to the pre-planned statistical analysis. Uh, So they said they're going to look at it one way, they look at it another way. There's subgroup analyses and spin. These are the kind of things you watch out for when you read papers. But there's bias at every level of this process. When it comes to clinical trial data, there's bias in the coding of adverse effects. So a good example of that is um, through litigation, we had the clinical trial, the clinical study reports of Tamiflu. And Tom Jefferson and colleagues from Cochrane Rome recoded all the adverse events and they got slightly different levels of adverse events than the investigators who coded it the first time. So you have the raw data, somebody has to make a decision. Did this person have grade one nausea, grade two nausea? So that, that, that requires judgment and there may be bias in that. There's bias in the choice of controls, blinding, endpoints, inclusion, exclusion criteria. I think that's some of what I'm gonna talk about today. Uh, when it comes to the design and conduct of a trial, are you testing your novel drug against what doctors actually use? Or are you testing it against some straw man comparator that uh, the FDA will let you get away with but we barely use? And then finally, there's bias in the choice of clinical question. We forget, but, you know, a large percentage of the clinical questions are really decided by for-profit entities in the healthcare space. They set the trial's agenda. They may not be asking the most interesting questions. For instance, you may see questions comparing, you know, should a patient get a drug at dose A or dose B? But a better question might be, should they get that drug at all? You know, so that you may not get that trial because it may be testing sort of a triviality. Okay, we talk a lot about data sharing, and we are at last on the cusp of, I think, de-identified individual patient-level data sharing, but it's important to remember that data sharing will only fix this latter part. If you have the raw data of a trial, you could recode the adverse effects, you could redo the endpoints, you could write it up the way you wanted it, but you can't go back and change the control arm of the study. That's so-called hardwired. It's built into the trial. Okay. I think. like last week, I wrote an article in Medscape that says something like, how do you keep up with the medical information? And one part of it talked about when you read trials, how do you read a trial? And I guess I would say, well, let me, give a, let me just explain what I actually said in the paper. So I actually said in the paper, um, the first thing you should do is you should pick a few journals you actually keep your eye on. And one journal, let's say, for instance, New England Journal of Medicine, what time does it come out online new? Wednesday, 2 p.m. Pacific time, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Okay, you should know that, because I think it's actually, it actually is important these days. So you go on the website right at 2.05 p.m., which is what I did right after our meeting yesterday, our tumor board, and I looked through all the articles. And all, what did I do? I just skimmed the titles and skimmed like, you know, and there was no oncology articles, so I was instantly bored. But, um, <laughs> but I do that every, every day at 2.05 p.m. I skimmed the titles. And you know, if it's not in my field, I don't read it. The original articles I look through, if they're randomized, I'm more likely to read it than observational. If it has a larger sample size, I'm more likely to read it, if it has a clinical endpoint rather than a surrogate endpoint. And I try to read a couple, like right in the heat of the moment, because by that evening and next morning on Twitter, social media, people will be talking about the article. And so if you want to participate in the discussion in real time, I think, you know, you kind of have to consume the information when it comes out. And so I do that for JCO, which comes out Mondays, and JAM Oncology, which comes out Thursdays, and a few journals. But once you pick the trials that actually like make your cut, which should be like, you know, I think like maybe one in every 20 papers you actually look at, or even less. Um, here's what you just have to ask yourself. Before you even read the paper, just try to a- answer these questions by skimming through it. What was the effect size? What was the effect? How big was the effect? Was the effect on a clinical endpoint or a biomarker? So was it on something that intrinsically matters to patients or a stand-in for that, a surrogate? Was the magnitude of the benefit Statistically significant and clinically meaningful? Or just statistically significant and and clinically a triviality? Will it matter to patients that kind of magnitude of benefit? Then I ask, is the control arm appropriate? Did they test the drug against the proper control? Or was it like nivolumab and decarbazine, which nobody was using decarbazine when they ran that trial? You know, you got to get in the habit of doing this, um, like going to the website, skimming through the articles. I think probably 1 in 20 will make your cut. The one of the things I say is, like, what do I actually read? The first thing I do is I go to the correspondence section. If it's correspondence about a paper I'd previously read, I'll always read that. Because you'll find something interesting. The second thing I do is, there's some authors I know, either personally or professionally. If I see their name on a paper, I'm going to read their paper. And the third thing I do is I read papers that actually have something to do with what we do, oncology. Uh, And the New England Journal of Medicine publishes, you all know, about 200 original articles a year. And so if there are 200 original articles, maybe... 50 at most are oncology, 40. Um, So yeah, I think it'll be about 40 articles at most in a year, maybe about one a week or one every, every one and a half weeks. Not too much. Okay, pop quiz. Tell us what this stands for and then is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? What is the response rate? Response rate is the percent of patients administered a drug who have 30% or more shrinkage in their tumor. If you have complete shrinkage of target lesions and normalization of lymph nodes, you are a complete response. And if you don't have that, you're a partial response. And the sum of complete and partial response is the response rate out of 100 people. Clinical or surrogate endpoint? Surrogate, okay. Okay, and what is progression? The time from enrolling on the study until your tumors that they're measuring get 20% bigger or you have a new lesion on the scan. And if you died before those two things happen, you're censored from the denominator. So why are these two surrogates, is there something magical about 20%? It's arbitrary, it was just picked. Does a human being walk around saying, I feel okay, I'm 119% and then 121%, oh, I felt terrible, no, right, so it's arbitrary but we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, progression-free survival is just like TTP, except if you die, it's coded as an endpoint. It's not censored. What's DFS? It's typically used in the adjuvant setting, so we've surgically resected the tumor fully, and it's the time until either the disease comes back or you die, whichever comes first. MMR, yeah, biomarker for CML, surrogate endpoint DFS. Okay, good. I think we always forget but we should always point out that even though we spend a great deal of time talking about the transformational drugs this is the average cancer drug 71 consecutive drugs approved from 2002 to 2014 and they've looked at the change in progression-free survival and overall survival in the pivotal trials it's 2.3 months median 2.1 months so even though we talk about the great drugs this is the probably it's fair to say the average drug is modest or marginal And when we talk about resist and progression and response, this is what we mean. Imagine this is your tumor, initial diameter, if you have a partial response, it's unidimensionally shrunk 30%. So its volume is maybe about a third of what it was when it started. And the same for progression is, it's 20% from the smallest it ever was. So if it never shrunk, 20% bigger, PD, progressive disease. And if it shrunk, 20% bigger, progressive disease. But this is still smaller than the initial measurement right so you can have progression if you have a response much lower volume of tumor and where did we get these cutoffs this is a charles mortel who is a mayo clinic oncologist and in 1976 he gathered 16 oncologists 12 spheres and took 1920 measurements so he gathered these like marbles and took a tablecloth and a foam rubber put the foam rubber over put the tablecloth over and had the marbles on the table And then he invited oncologists to feel these 12 solid spheres. They measured between 1.8 and 14 centimeters in diameter. The layer of foam rubber was half an inch thick, which was approximating the skin and subcutaneous tissue. This was back in the 70s. We'd have to maybe make the foam rubber bigger these days. But (laughs) it's just the trends in. Um, and then he says, and then he says, each of the 16 experienced physicians practicing in oncology was asked to measure the diameter of each sphere using the usual technique and equipment he employed in clinical practice. He says he employed, unfortunately, because it's all men back in the 70s. And they really had you bring in whatever you did to measure tumors in your practice. Okay. And then they found out that participants were unaware that two tumors were actually the same size. And these tumors were also the same size. Okay. Anyway, I don't want to bore you with this math, but basically what he asked was, if I measured a bunch of marbles, and there are two marbles that are very close in size, one centimeter, 1.11 centimeter, I probably won't be able to tell those apart reliably. If I do it a thousand times, I may make a mistake a lot because it's through foam rubber and I have a caliper. You know, it's not a precise science. But once it gets to a certain difference in size, I can start to reliably tell two things apart. That's what he's showing. And once it starts to get to a certain difference in size, you and I can reliably say this is bigger than that, right? Um, and what he's saying is that 25% and 50% these cutoffs that we use actually came from this. They came from the differences in which you and I could reliably tell things apart when we use calipers through foam rubber measuring marbles. OK, the reason I say all that is that's what people forget. This, when we designed Resist, um, and, when, and even prior to Resist, These cutoffs were picked for operational reasons back in the day they're not picked because they tell you something about how well a person feels and now we have very sophisticated cat scans that can measure things better but still not perfectly precisely and i think i'll have data what happens if you take the same cat scan and have different people score the tumor tumor changes okay We have to also think about the population of people we study in clinical trials. This was a paper by the FDA, seven year experience. Here's what they found. If you took every FDA trial that led to drug approval and you asked how many people in my FDA (coughs) trial are over the age of 65, 70, or 75, it's this bar, okay? 35% over 65, 20% over 70, and 10% over 75. They also asked if you took all Americans with cancer How many are over 65, 70, and 75? And that's the tall bar. Okay? What's your conclusion? Clinical trials are enrolling people of the average age? No. They're enrolling people who are disproportionately younger than the average cancer patient. And this problem has existed for many, many years, and no one has done anything about it to fix it. We'll talk about why it's problematic later on. But it is problematic because now I know that a drug works really well in a 55-year-old with no comorbidities because they're entered my trial. And I go to clinic and I have to practice on an 85-year-old with comorbidities and heart failure. Is the drug going to work just as well? Is the toxicity going to be just as bearable? Here's another paper came out of the uh, Kaiser Permanente group. The nice thing about Kaiser Permanente is um, I think it's fair to say that they're a very representative group of patients. Um, employers use Kaiser as their insurance company, and Kaiser Northern California has huge market share. So, if you took an average patient with cancer and an average Kaiser patient, they probably look pretty similar. So, what they did was they took the randomized control trial exclusion criteria from two very seminal lung cancer studies and applied it to 400 consecutive Kaiser Permanente patients with lung cancer. This was Lou Ferenbacher and colleagues. And when the standard RCT criteria were applied, only 34% were eligible for the trial, and then when they added the special criteria for angiogenesis inhibitors, some of these I think were avast in studies, only 21% were eligible. So what they were arguing here is that the trial is only a a minority of patients in Kaiser, real-world patients, would be eligible for this trial. So how generalizable is your trial then to Kaiser Permanente patients? Here's a classic example that I love to tell because I think the story is good. Um, this is the SHARP study, randomized controlled trial of serafinib versus placebo in metastatic or unresectable hepatocellular carcinoma. Uh, Seraphinib is a dirty TKI. It uh, hits many targets in the tyrosine kinome. And this was a, a plenary session back in the day, one of the original plenary sessions, because of the improvement in median survival from 8 months to about 11 months. It's pretty good. One of the things people noticed after serafinib was used a lot in the real world is it's very difficult to give. Do your patients love serafinib when you give it to them? You're shaking your head no, what do they say? They feel terrible right away. And that's just when they see you, and then they take the serafinib and it feels even worse, right? okay, yeah. So it's rough. Um, okay, so there's a marginal benefit under ideal circumstances. These are all child's Pew, mostly A, some B. No child's PU C. Average age was what, 60 something in the SHARP study? Um, This is Stacey Dusitzina and Hannah Sanoff who looked at the use of Serafinib in the Medicare data set. Medicare is the primary insurance of people over the age of 65 who tend to be the group where most HCC is found. Here's what they find. The blue line shows everyone in Medicare who took Serafinib and their median survival, which was about three to four months. So one thing I want to point out is that patients in the real world taking the active drug live less than half as long as patients in the trial taking placebo, uh, suggesting that the trial is really enriched with favorable biology patients. And then they also did a propensity score matched analysis, which I won't get into too much, uh, but it shows basically that if you were similar to the group that took the drug but didn't take the drug, the red, there was actually no survival difference. So serafinib, a marginal benefit under ideal circumstances may have no benefit under real-world circumstances, in part because the population is so dissimilar from actual cancer patients. One of the other nuances that we need to understand is that response rate, which is the percent of patients who have more than 30% shrinkage in their tumors, um, is prone to bias. Okay. Okay. If I take full FOX and I give it to patients with colorectal cancer in a phase two trial, and then I take full FOX and I give it to patients with colorectal cancer in a phase three trial, in both of those studies, I will get a response rate. There's a percent of people who have 30% or more shrinkage. And Zia and colleagues took every time they could ever find the same chemo in the same tumor type given in a phase two, typically uncontrolled, but some were controlled, but mostly uncontrolled, and a subsequent phase three, bigger randomized trial. And here's what they found. The response rate in phase two and the response rate in phase three. Every dot is the same regimen, okay? The line is a unity line, one-to-one. So most dots are above or below the line? Below, which tells you the response rate in the phase two study is consistently higher than the response rate in the phase three study. Same drugs, same tumor type. This suggests probably some of it is regression to the mean. Like we do a phase two and we get a nice result, and we run a phase three, and there'll be a regression to the mean, what the true response rate is. But some of it may be biased because these may not always be blinded. If it's uncontrolled, you know the patient's getting the drug, you may be more likely to score it as a response. But the simple fact remains, when you read the nightly news, which I, we continue to see, and some new drug has a 50% response rate in you know, thyroid cancer, and you say, wow, that's really good. But, you know, keep in mind that if you ran it in a phase three, that might be just a, you know, 30% response rate or something. It's likely inflated. We talked a bit about surrogate endpoints. It's important to know that they're on the rise. This is Chris Booth and colleagues from Kingston, Ontario. They took a set of randomized trials between 2005 and 2009, and 1995 and 2004, and they say, how often is survival, DFS, RFS, TTP, PFS, EFS response rate the primary endpoint of the study? Here's what they found. They found that overall survival used to be the primary endpoint 50% of the time. Now it's only the primary endpoint a third of the time. Response rate was 14% of the time, now it's 6%. So it's not explained by response rate in phase three studies. It's really explained by a rise in PFS and DFS and RFS. A rise in time to event surrogate endpoints. That's what's taken over. And this graph here shows that the sample size of studies and the proportion of studies funded by the industry have also gone up hand in hand over time. So if I run a lung cancer study, and I have a sample size of 100, I may only be able to detect a four month survival benefit as statistically significant. But if I have a sample size of 400 or 600 or 800, I may be able to detect a 1.6 month survival benefit as statistically significant. So in other words, just because you have a bigger sample size doesn't mean the trial is bigger. It also gives you p- huge power to find statistically significant, but of dubious clinical relevance benefits. Hmm. Ah, this is the paper. Okay, What's the name of this type of plot? My favorite plot. I'm not going to show you the un- that unpublished data we have, but I will show you what is a waterfall plot. For people who enroll on a study and get treated with a drug and are eligible for or undergo at least one subsequent scan, it plots the the absolute best response you have, the best subsequent scan you have. So in other words, if I enroll in the study and I take a drug for like eight months and then my tumor keeps shrinking, 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 eight months is the smallest, nine months it starts to grow, 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 grow. That person will take their eight month scan and will plot it up here and will say, you know, they shrunk, 80% shrinkage by 8 months. That's their column. The second person, that person has maximum shrinkage by 2 months, so we'll take their 2 months. The third person, their tumor will grow right away, so then we'll take the very first scan because it's a little bit bigger than the starting, we won't take the second scan. So everyone gets their most favorable subsequent scan, plotted here. And we'll just look at one. So this person, this red bar, this person's most favorable scan was tumor growth about 40%, it's above the line. This person's most favorable scan was minor tumor shrinkage, arguably the noise of the measurement. This person had a big response. Okay, Every color corresponds to a person. And all of these different numbers, is, this is a medonc, 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 radiologist, 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 radiologist. Ian Tanock had radiologists and medical oncologists measure the same scans. So this blue is the same blue here, as the same blue here, as the, the same blue here. It's the same person. But why is this, radio, this medical oncologist saying it grew a lot, and this medical oncologist saying it barely grew, and this one's saying it grew a little? So what I think he's showing you is that there is more variability in the measurements of scans than we, than we think. Um, so if you want to explain why response rate is a surrogate, I think you have, to, you have to know that it's not just an arbitrary threshold, but that measuring tumors is not like measuring your height. I like to say it's like measuring the width of a cloud. Have you measured tumors for resist? It's not easy. You move that mouse a little bit, you get a little, you know, a little dust in the mouse and you, your hand jerked <laughs> and then boom, it progressed. It really is not as precise as people think. And this is proof because multiple people scoring tumor scans have divergent ideas about what the best waterfall, yeah. So this is a waterfall plot again. It's trying to show you that Nevo plus Ippi is better than Nevo. Um, you can hardly see the columns because there 's so many people on it, but you know this is the time until the absolute best response okay I guess I want to explain how do you study whether or not progression free survival correlates with overall survival okay so one might say look it 's okay, I concede to you it 's a surrogate endpoint you know there 's this measurement error, twenty percent is an arbitrary number there 's no reason somebody will feel bad at twenty percent but is it possible that drugs that delay the time until tumors get 20% bigger make you live longer? That could very well be the case. It could be like blood pressure. Blood pressure is a surrogate endpoint for cardiovascular events, but drugs that lower blood pressure tend to improve cardiovascular events. It's a very good surrogate. Is it like that? So we did it in this umbrella analysis, which we published in JAMA Internal Medicine, I think, in 2015. And here's how you should know. How do you actually like validate a surrogate endpoint? First, you collect every single clinical trial, randomized trial of that surrogate endpoint in that setting. So in breast cancer, imagine there's two trials. In one trial, I gave drug A, and PFS went from three months in the control arm to six months in the treatment arm. Survival went from 18 months to 21 months in a subsequent publication. In another trial, I give another drug one month to two months. OS, you know, 12 months to 13. So then I plot the change in PFS on one axis and the change in OS on the other axis. So each dot is one of the trials. So this dot is the trial where you improve PFS one month, and you improve OS one month. That's this trial. And this dot is the trial where you improve PFS three months and OS three months. Okay? And then you do linear regression. Okay? Now you just do this for like hundreds and hundreds of trials. And the strength of the R, the correlation coefficient, how tight the dots are on the plot, that tells you how good a correlation it is. And you don't have to use delta. You could also use hazard ratio PFS. Okay, you could use some sort of percent change. Okay, so what happens when you do this? One can imagine, I could do this in metastatic frontline breast cancer. I, I could look at all those trials, and there's probably dozens. I could do it in metastatic colorectal cancer. I could do it in lung cancer. So what if you do it in every, every cancer? This is what we did. This is Spencer, Spencer's figure. This is called an arrow diagram that only, only Spencer can explain because I have no idea how he does it. But <laughs> here's what it shows. Every single one of these things is a tumor type in setting. This is colon cancer metastatic, breast cancer metastatic, colon cancer adjuvant, non-small cell lung cancer adjuvant. And as you move in time from 2000 to 2020, I think it, it actually cuts off in 2018, of course. We're not going into the future. These are every published study of a surrogate correlation in all the tumor types so the first thing you'll see is that okay for a long time there are very few of these studies but there's been a lot more in recent years okay the next thing that you'll see is that the number of trials in the correlation study is the size of the rectangle and one of these is really really big this is adjuvant breast i think 129 studies or is it adjuvant lung one of those two have a lot of studies adjuvant breast and adjuvant lung have a lot of studies and some of these are very very small meaning very few studies are being correlated like the kind of like the plot I showed you with two studies okay and then the color code tells you if it's a strong or weak or good correlation so red is weak correlation and green is good correlation and what I want to point out is sometimes the green and the red are in the same exact tumor type like there's so many different analyses some are positive three were negative in that setting right that's kind of suspicious. It suggests that like, I wouldn't have a lot of faith in this trial, in this correlation study, if multiple other correlation studies in that setting were very negative. Uh, so I think that's what you see in this arrow. And then we've plotted it out. Here's what we find. If you look for PFS or response rate against OS in a metastatic setting, most of them are low correlations, some of them are medium correlations, and a few are high. And most uh, agencies believe you need a high correlation before you can really put stock in that surrogate. So as a general rule, PFS is a poor predictor of overall survival. And I forgot to put the slide in, but just on Monday this week in JAMA Internal Medicine, uh, Kovics and colleagues from McMaster looked at the correlation between PFS and uh, health-related quality of life. And they find essentially no correlation at all. So you wanna say like, okay, well, PFA, drugs that improve PFS, they may not make me live longer, but surely they improve my quality of life. Well, they found that that's not the case. And there's another group, the Harvard group has have, have the data, it's coming out next month, or in a couple months, um, and they have the exact same finding. There's no correlation between PFS and health-related quality of life. Okay, when they used the endpoint surrogate, did they know it had a good correlation? We did this paper in the Mayo Clinic proceedings in 2016 where we call strength of validation for surrogate endpoints used by the FDA, okay? So here's what we found. First, the FDA between, I forget, in a five-year period of time, they approved 83 drugs. Uh, 25 drugs were accelerated approval. An accelerated approval is a drug that's approved on the basis of a surrogate endpoint, thought reasonably likely to predict overall survival, Um, and it has a post-marketing efficacy commitment. And what you see is that 24 surrogate approvals are on the basis of response rate, and one of them is on the basis of PFS. These are surrogates that we think are reasonably likely to predict OS, and there's a post-marketing commitment for these drug approvals. That's not bad. We also found that there's traditional or full regulatory approvals, and about a third of the drugs are approved on the basis of proven OS benefits, although like SHARP, it could be in like, idealized patients, and in the real world, those will be eroded. But we also found a third of the drugs approved with regular approval or half the regular approval drugs were approved on the basis of a surrogate response rate, and then these are the PFS, DFS, okay. If they're using PFS and they're using response rate to approve it and giving a regular approval means no post-marketing commitment, surely they would have known that this is a good correlation, right? So that's what we asked. We asked if you look up every single one of these indications, is there correlation studies? And here's what we found. In the accelerated approval space, we found that 14 out of those 25, there was absolutely no correlation study ever published in the literature, at all. When you did publish the study, there were more likely to be something called level 2, which is really, uh, I don't want to bore you with that, but basically, it's not a good type of study. Or it was the level 1 studies that I showed you, uh, but had low correlation. So in other words, when you say reasonably likely to predict, We mostly mean your gut feeling that it's reasonably likely to predict. There's actually very little data. 14 out of 25, there's no data. Now we talk about surrogates being used for full regulatory approval. And here the regulatory language says it has to be established. And I would say we can debate what established means. But one thing established cannot mean is no study ever done. And yet we found for 11 out of 30, there was no study ever done. So, to your question, when they're using these surrogates, did they previously validate it? I think the answer is no. And this is the US FDA. And this is, you know, their statutory language says, we must be established, and they are not living up to it. And then I have a slide from them that says, you know, that basically says established means this orange bar, high level, strong correlation, level one study, um, and that's only the case for three out of 30 approvals. So, we find this problematic. Okay, I'll go back. So I do think we, people, do not do that hard work. Okay, let's talk about manipulating surrogates. Um, When you look at a Kaplan-Meier curve, it has these numbers under the curve. These are the patients at risk. So this means 300 people started in this arm, and then, you know, over here, there's like one person here. Okay? Why is, if there's one person in the serafinib arm here, why is it at like 40%? 300 people at risk is 100%. Now one person's here and it's at 40%. What's going on? Censoring, yeah. So basically, some people may have enrolled in the trial only five months ago, and they contribute to the denominator only until five months, and then they no longer contribute to the denominator at subsequent time intervals. That's censoring. So in overall survival, the only reason you get censored is you recently enrolled in the study. With progression-free survival, you may be censored because you recently enrolled in the study, or if you stopped showing up for your follow-up scans or didn't get all your scans as planned, you can be censored. And I would say, when you look at one PFS curve, just look in this area. If it goes from 300 to 100 right away, you know 200 people are censored in the first time interval. That is a bit troublesome. It suggests that like, why are so many people censored right away? So anyway, the reason I say that is there's a trial called Bolero, which is a randomized control trial of Everlimus plus exemestane, And we looked at it and we noticed that there was just tons of censoring. And it was all early on censoring. And what we did was, we plotted these figures. And these figures show the Kaplan-Meier survival curve of the control for PFS, blue. The PFS curve for the treatment, red. And then the dotted red and the light and the light red, these show what would happen to the censored patients if something else happened. Okay, what do I mean? The entire Kaplan-Meier method use, makes an assumption. The assumption is that a person who is censored from the from the trial in the denominator, that person was no more likely to experience the event of interest in the next time interval as the people who I followed. So for instance, if you enrolled on my study five months ago, and you enrolled in my study a year ago, and you know one year later, there's a 20% per year event rate, you're likely to have a 20% event rate when you get there. Um, you're no likely you're no more likely to be healthier than the person who I have more follow-up on. That's the assumption of Kaplan Meyer. Okay, but that assumption can be distorted if one of the reasons you're censored is you don't show up to scans. Because people who don't show up to scans, they may not be at like the average person in the study. They may be sicker. Right? They may be that might be the reason why they're not showing up. So in this bolero trial, it has lots of censoring, and there's more censoring in one arm than the other. And that censoring may no longer be uninformative censoring, it may be informative censoring. And so we hypothesize what would happen if the people censored did very poorly, solid line, or very well, dotted line. And what you see here is you can actually get these curves to cross very quickly. Okay, why is this interesting? This is a drug used in metastatic breast cancer. It improves PFS, does not improve overall survival. And the PFS gain Uh, is in the setting of heavy censoring. So when people say, like, why did the OS not go up, people say, oh, it's subsequent lines of therapy. But the other explanation is maybe there's some artifact of how you've manipulated this. So to your question about PFS, I suspect that, like, you cannot manipulate OS in this way. You can't lose a lot of people from the denominator of OS. Because even if somebody stops showing up, you can call them up at their house and find out, did this person pass away? What day did they pass away? You can add it to your data set. But if somebody stops showing up for scans, you cannot use their information. Okay, here's a study that we did uh, where we looked at if the drug was improved by shrinking tumor or improving PFS, did it later show OS benefit? So I take a bunch of drugs that shrunk tumors, response rate or PFS drugs, 4.5 years on the US market, here's what happens to all those drugs. Out of 36 drugs, only 12% later showed OS benefit. I think five out of 36 later showed OS benefit, the rest, OS benefit had not been assessed, or OS benefit was reported, but there was no improvement in OS. So it would be one thing if the drugs came to market based on PFS response rate, and then later showed OS benefit, we show that this barely happens. And then Ajay Agarwal and colleagues in the BMJ last year, they did this for all the British drugs through EMA, and they have like identical results. And not to mention quality of life. So if you look at the drugs that had no OS benefit, and you followed them out in time, uh, only a, one of them had better quality of life. Some had mixed quality of life, so different scores go up, some scores go down, some had no difference or worse quality of life, and some had no evidence. This is uh, Tracy Rupp in JAM Internal Medicine. So what are the takeaways there? The endpoint is surrogate, poor correlation. Uh, not, we are not doing the post-marketing studies to establish survival or quality of life benefit. Mm, I think some people feel this is problematic cardiovascular drug, okay, imagine I come up with a a new bedside scanner. You can carry it in your pocket, and you can put it right on somebody's chest, and it will detect plaque in the left main coronary artery, okay? I'm using a cardiology example that I've invented because I think it will pull you out of your oncology mindset. It'll allow you to see the truth, and then we'll go back to oncology and see the analogy. Okay, so I have a new device, I pull it out of my pocket, it can tell me exactly how much plaque is in the left main coronary artery. And then I invent a new drug that can cause that plaque to regress. And obviously, we believe that the more plaque, the worse things are for the patient. So we know that natural history shows that people with cardiovascular disease go from zero plaque to 0.1 millimeter, 0.2, 0.3, 0.4, 0.5, and then they you know, they die. Once they get more than 0.5, they die, let's say, hypothetically. You wanna study your drug in a randomized trial. You want to start with people on the wards who have 0.4 millimeters of plaque uh, because they're, like, pretty, pretty sick. Is this okay? New drug, new device, measuring plaque in a new way? Yes. Okay, I think it's fair. So here, we take people with 0.4 millimeters of plaque, we randomize them to drug or placebo, and lo and behold, what oh, what endpoint do you want to measure? You're a cardiologist. What endpoint are you going to measure? Mortality. And in fact, I think the cardiologist would, would, um, would measure that. Let's say mortality is beneficial. Your drug works. You randomize people with 0. 0.4 millimeters of plaque, the drug versus placebo, you have an all-cause mortality benefit, okay? Now, you're the drug company, and you're like, wow, this is pretty good, but um, you know, not a lot of people have 0. 0.4 millimeters plaque. I wanna you know, use this maybe earlier in the disease. So let me do a randomized control trial of people with 0. 0.1 millimeters of plaque. So I take people earlier on, right? I find them with less plaque. I randomize them to the drug or placebo, okay? Um, What do I do to the placebo people once they get to 0.4 millimeters of plaque? They have to get the drug, I think, why? Because the first trial showed benefit there. So now that I've already established a benefit, when the control arm patients get to 0.4, they have to get the drug, right? Uh, And they get the drug. And overall survival is negative from this trial. If overall survival is negative from this trial, then how would you interpret the data? So you have a patient in front of you with 0.1. Should you give him the drug? No, I think the trial shows you can safely wait to 0.4, then give the drug, and then you have a mortality benefit there. But there's no added benefit from moving the drug up to 0.1, okay? That's what I wanna show you in cardiology. Okay, too bad we just, that's not the lesson that we know in oncology. And then the other thing I wanted to show you here what if, in that initial study of 0.4 millimeters of plaque, we did a randomized trial, they get the drug, but when the placebo arm got to 0.5 millimeters of plaque, we crossed them all over to the drug? Would that make sense? If your first study to show benefit of the drug, I think it would make no sense because you haven't even established the drug works. So, too bad that, like, basically what I want to show you is that we basically do this in oncology all the time. We take a drug that has never proven therapeutic benefit, and we cross everyone over to it at some arbitrary threshold, and then we cannot say anything about OS, and we basically don't do this in oncology. When we've already established a drug works for people with more severe disease states, we don't always give it to those patients in a trial. Those make both those type of trials, I think, unreliable. Let's talk about sipuleucel t sipuleucel t my favorite example to talk about, because uh, you don't use it too much. Uh, It is a prostate cancer vaccine. This was the first cancer therapeutic vaccine. And it's different than like a vaccine for hepatitis B or HPV, because those are vaccines to prevent you from acquiring a virus. Cancer therapeutic vaccines are, if you already have a cancer, we give you a vaccine, which should make your body fight the cancer. It's a different strategy. And they've tried it for many, many years, decades. This was the one that was approved. And it was approved based on this. This is overall survival. Placebo, 22 months, cipleucyl T, 24 months. Improvement in overall survival. It has zero response rate. There are no responses on this drug. In progression-free survival, the curves are superimposable, okay? So no responses, no PFS, but it has an OS benefit. Okay, sounds good. What do you need to know? This is the design. Basically, you took all these patients, and you pharesed them all. You took their blood out to make the vaccine. Um, And you collected certain cells, dendritic cells, you processed in the vaccine. You made a vaccine for everybody. In one group of people, you injected them with the vaccine. In the other group, you injected them with placebo. And you took the vaccine you made for them and you froze it in the refrigerator. And then you followed them along. And then they had no responses in either arm. They progressed on the exact same day, on average. They progressed at the same time if you progressed after getting the vaccine cipollucil t we gave you docetaxel which is a chemo drug that has a proven survival advantage if you progressed on the placebo vaccine we thawed out the vaccine we had in the freezer and we injected you with it so you crossed over to the frozen salvage vaccine why did we do that because how else are you going to enroll patients on the trial they want to get the vaccine it's so it sounds so wonderful who would want to enroll in a trial just, just to get a placebo You want to eventually give them the vaccine, at least that's what they said. Okay, once they progressed a second time after the frozen vaccine, then they got docetaxel. Okay, what if I were to tell you the time that these people took to get docetaxel was 12 months, this was about 13 months. 60% of people got docetaxel in the Cipalizal T arm, 50% of people got docetaxel in the control arm. Now, is there an alternate explanation Sipalucil-T has no response rate, no PFS, improves OS, but in that trial, people who got Sipalucil-T got docetaxel, a proven drug, one month sooner and 10% more got the drug. And then you look at this survival curve and you start to wonder, are they living longer because the vaccine helped them or are they living longer because the control arm was harmed because when they progressed, they didn't get docetaxel, they got some frozen, useless vaccine what if the vaccine was just a pixie stick? In one group, I give you a pixie stick. When you progress, I give you the treatment. In the other group, I give you a placebo pixie stick. When you progress, I give you the real pixie stick that's from the refrigerator, so it tastes awful. And then when you progress the second time, I give you the treatment. You see what I'm getting at? You don't know that vaccine helped or the fact that downstream therapy was suboptimal in the control arm. So this is why crossover for the initial um assessment of a drug is a very foolish thing to do you will never be able to interpret this so the hrq did a review of this drug and they said we cannot exclude the fact that survival in the absence of response rate or pfs is actually due to harm towards the control group from delay in chemo and an ineffective frozen salvage product okay so i would say there's situations in oncology where crossover is problematic there's are situations in which the fundamental efficacy of the experimental agent has not been established prior to the study, it's like Cipalucil-T. We don't know this drug works at all. You cross people over. Now, I, can't, I, I really can't interpret that trial. Um, another example, but at the same time, there are situations where we don't cross people over. So in Cleopatra, we added pertuzumab to trastuzumab chemo. We didn't cross them over. There was an OS benefit, so that's desirable. So I guess I want to say is, when crossover is undesirable, you can either have it or not have it. If you have it, it's a bad thing. But there's a different situation, the situation of the second, ty- the second study I told you about, where the cardiac plaque goes from 0.1 to 0.4. This is where crossover is desirable. These are situations in which the experimental drug has already proven benefit in a latter line of therapy and a standard of care in the latter line. Then, you want to cross everyone over. Like we saw in what Keynote 189 yesterday, which is carbopem-pem carbopem Pem versus Carbo Pem, but if you progressed on Carbo Pem, you got Pembrolizumab, and was it a satisfactory number that 40% in lung cancer a couple years ago? We knew that the second-line therapy should be Pembrolizumab immunotherapy, and somebody asked the question of, like just like in that cardiac example, the 0.4 millimeters, we knew second-line therapy give them immunotherapy. And somebody says, should I add immunotherapy to the frontline regimen, the first thing they get? So in one arm of the trial, you get chemo plus immunotherapy. In the other arm of the trial, you just get chemo. But when you progress on that arm, you should get immunotherapy because that's what the standard of care is in the second line. And a lot of times they run trials where they don't give immunotherapy on the back end, which leaves one to wonder, you know, did did you really need to move it up? But in this particular trial, they actually did give immunotherapy on the back end in a good number of patients thus, we are satisfied that crossover was desirable and it occurred. But in another situation, crossover was desirable, but it did not occur. That was latitude. So we already know that abiraterone has a survival advantage in castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer, both before and after docetaxel, in two Cougar studies. And somebody tested it earlier on in the disease setting in castrate-sensitive prostate cancer in latitude. But when you progressed on the control arm, you didn't get abiraterone at all. And so these people write... We cannot be sure that the survival advantage of early treatment would still exist if control patients had fair access to the drug. So that was the comment in the New England Journal in the in the correspondence section. And then Pacific finally in the follow-up of Pacific I did figure out that the crossover occurred almost in nobody, you know. You saw that it's in the supplement. It's like 20 people. It's ridiculous. Anyway, all right, we're going to have to pause. That's it for now. What were the takeaway lessons from part 1? I guess I would say, you need to know, uh, I mean, I think you need to know, we talk a lot about response rate, but people often don't know. It's the percent of people who have more than 30% tumor shrinkage. Measuring a tumor is like measuring the width of a cloud. There is measurement error. It's not like measuring your height. Um, These cutoffs that we pick were picked for operational reasons once upon a time, so that's why they're arbitrary. All of this put together is why it's a surrogate endpoint. These surrogates, unfortunately, do not correlate that well with survival or quality of life. Unfortunately, we use them more and more. Unfortunately, we're not doing post-marketing studies to ascertain benefits on survival. This probably would all be forgivable if our drugs were transformational, but the average drug is very marginal, 2.1 months. Um, And trials are, uh, you have to know the clinical question, you have to know the design. And then the last point about crossover, which is that sometimes you want it, sometimes you don't want it, and when you want it, you better get it, and if you don't want it, you better not get it. And you have to tease those situations apart because I think people can easily fall into this habit of saying, I never want crossover, but that would be incorrect, for instance, in Keynote 189. Or I always want crossover, but that would be incorrect, I think, in Sipalusul T. Okay, in part two, we'll talk more about these topic and censoring and things like that. Part 2 of our Interpretation of Clinical Trials and Clinical Data Seminar Series. Hope you find it interesting. Okay. It's a quick refresher. Disease-free survival and progression-free survival are composite time-to-event endpoints. Okay. What is a time-to-event endpoint? Any one of a number of events. And so, if it, if it could be event A, B, or C, and if A happens before B, it's the time until A. And if B happens before A, it's the time until B. And a composite endpoint. Okay, so what are the components of disease free survival in breast cancer? And then we're gonna talk about DFS and lung. Okay, so disease free survival, it's a time from randomization until you experience a DFS event. But what are the DFS events in breast cancer? There are at least four, maybe five. We'll see. Okay, let's go. Name an event. Death. If the first thing that happens to a person is that they subsequently die, that's the event. And we should also remember, DFS is used in settings of adjuvant. So the patient has had the tumor fully surgically removed. If you scan them in a CAT scanner, you wouldn't find any tumor, theoretically. Of course not, because if you did, they would be metastatic. Okay, so death is an endpoint. What else? Okay, so invasive, invasive disease. Where? Where? Okay, so local invasive disease, you have a recurrence right at the site, or contralateral. If it's contralateral, what do you think that is? New primary? Maybe new primary? If it's a metastasis, contralateral breast, that would be and nowhere else would be a bit unusual. Okay, what else? Distant metastasis. What else? Good, DCIS. And if you use something called invasive disease-free survival, you remove DCIS. Okay, I think that's it. So the point here is that, I guess if you look through uh, DFS trials, where do you think the bulk of the DFS events are coming from? Which of these is driving DFS? Which is it not? Which is like the least likely event in DFS? Death. So you know in diabetes trials sometimes they have like 1, A1C rises 1.2, you're blind, and 3, you're on dialysis. And then they do a trial and they say the early use of uh, whatever Gila monster saliva drug they've invented decreases the time until diabetes gets worse or you have end organ damage. Doesn't that sound good? Then you look at it, and it's all driven by the, you know, the A1C endpoint. And similarly here, these tend to be the bigger drivers, the ones at the top. Okay. Now, what is PFS? The other thing I want to make a point here is that um, this, this endpoint is always moving in the sense that the fine edge of the endpoint is moving. As CAT scans get better and better, you can diagnose DFS events that 25 years ago you wouldn't be able to diagnose. A DFS event was probably a, a, a bigger chunk of tumor coming back. Okay, what are the composite endpoints of PFS? Death. Progression. Progression, which means two things. What counts as progression? Unresist 1.1. Enlarging target lesions or new lesions. Who saw this press release this morning? What does it say? Hmm, you recall in August of this year, Nivolumab, single agent, was approved for second line small cell lung cancer based on a response rate of how many percentage points was that response rate? Yeah, 10, 15%. Is that a good response rate? Excuse me? (laughs) No. For small cell, look at the caveat. Okay, it was approved based on a response rate of 15%. In August of this year, 2018, how many years ago did we know it had a response rate of 15%? 2016. Who's listening to the podcast? Episode three, people. Episode three. Talk about it. Episode three. We knew it had the response rate in 2016, Lancet Oncology paper. They waited two years knowing the response rate with no, essentially no additional data. Then they gave the accelerated approval in August. And now we have the results of the randomized phase three checkmate 331 trial, randomizing them to immunotherapy, nivolumab, which received approval versus topotecan or amrubicin. Are these good drugs? Not very good and it did not win it lost so what's going to happen the same thing that will happen to a tezolizumab in, bl- in uh, bladder cancer second line what happened there they did not pull the indication even though it didn't meet the endpoint yeah I see what I see what you're saying you're saying that it one could justify it because it's approved in the latter line we saw the same thing with uh, Olaparib in germline BRCA into the ODAC it approved in the fourth line not the third line the third line had a negative randomized trial but uh what is the confirmatory study for any of these things it is this study the confirmatory study is the one that moved it advances it a line of therapy the confirmatory study is negative now we have to take it on faith that well Obdevo versus the opposite chemotherapy or investigator choice chemotherapy or maybe even best supportive care would have improved survival in the third line but we don't have that data but i think this is surprising it's supposed to be 15 percent in the third line maybe the response rate in the second line is a little bit higher but it lost same thing with the Tezo. What about Atezo in bladder? You use that? Or you switched over to Pembro? You use Pembro because it positive phase three? Let's not forget that the cost of these agents is going up. But I disagree with your contention that just because it's one further ladder line of therapy doesn't justify the lack of randomization. We have randomization it's negative in the a, in a second line. And these are pretty probably similar kind of patient populations, relapse refractory cost of cancer drugs is rising five times faster than other classes of medications. Look at that. This is cost per month. In the 1970s, it was like $100 per month of therapy. Now it's like $12,000 per month of therapy. Like that palbociclib. Hey, for $12,000 a month of a therapy with palbociclib, how many months of median overall survival do I get? What was the OS benefit of palbociclib in Paloma, long-term follow-up? I'm sorry, I said OS. (laughs) And actually, you didn't double the PFS anymore. The PFS keeps shrinking every time they study that palpable over and over again. There's no OS benefit. It has a PFS benefit, no OS benefit, and real toxicity. Reminds me of Avastin in breast cancer, except one is widely used and marketed at $12,000 per month of treatment, and the other one has been revoked by the US FDA. This is a graph of the median household income in this country adjusted for inflation. What is that? Stagnation. Even though there's been a lot of wealth created in this country, the median household income is essentially flat since the 1970s. That's why our Gini coefficient is through the roof, even though inequality is through the roof. This blue line shows the median monthly cost of an anti-cancer drug in the US. Something wrong here. The best-selling drugs make a billion dollars per year. Rituxan, eight billion. Bevacizumab, seven billion. Trastuzumab, six billion. Imatinib, almost five billion a year. And that wasn't supposed to even be profitable. When you have competition in the drug space, all the price of everything goes up. Imatinib, average cost per day, about $100 when it initially approved. $30,000 a year, Uh, people thought it was untenable Now we have nilotinib and dasatinib approved, and the price of all of these agents has marched up lockstep together. Which is the better of those three drugs? That's the question. How about OS benefit? None. They're all indistinguishable. What about your major molecular response? Yeah, fair enough. Ah. This is the pricing changes in Medicare Part B. But before I tell you about it, let me tell you. You know that Martin Scarelli, he took pyrimethamine, and raised the price from $13 a pill to $750 a pill, that toxoplasmosis drug. Pharma bro, Martin Scarelli. Mm-hmm. Well, he raised that price, what, 5,000% overnight? And that drug is very, very old, so he's considered a profiteer. People don't like that kind of behavior. But we asked, is that behavior an exception or the rule in cancer medicine? So this is every single drug that is paid for by Medicare Part B. What does Medicare Part B pay for? Medicare Part B versus Part D. What does Part B pay for? What does Part D pay for? Part A and B are hospitalizations. Part B are drugs administered in a doctor's office or in a hospital, IV medications. And Part D are oral pills. So these are everything in Part B, because we have the Part B prices they put out. All of the IV medications that we administer in doctor's office. And we got the price in 2010 and the price in 2015. That's a five-year period of time. And what we plot here is the change in price, percent change, between 2010 and 2015. So there's a couple of drugs here on the end that have nearly 100% price decreases. What do you think happened to those drugs? Between 2010 and 2015, something happened to gemcitabine, topotecan, epirubicin, and they had nearly 100% price reduction. They went generic now you see a whole bunch of drugs nothing much happens then a bunch of drugs somebody's creaking up the price a little bit and then you have this 1500 percent increase in price carmustine oral methotrexate administered in the doctor's office cyclophosphamide some of these things are going up thousand fold price increases these are all the martin scorelli kind of drugs and if you plot the year the drug was approved by the fda and the change in price between 2010 and 2015, you get a graph that looks like this. This is the regression analysis. This is the change in price between 2010 and 2015 on the y-axis and the year the compound was originally FDA approved on the x. So which drugs are manufacturers raising more between 2010 and 2015? Old ones. They are engaging in the Scarelli behavior. The older drugs are undergoing larger price increases in those years than the newer drugs. So Martin Scarelli is not a pharma bro. He's a representative pharma member who acts like a bro. He's representative. This is the graph of R&D expenditures, sales and marketing expenditures, and profit of the major pharmaceutical companies. Yes. I see. Exactly right. If you want to hide your price increase, you do it slowly. Just like the frog doesn't jump out of the pot when you turn the temperature up slowly. Is that right? (laughs) And who's the frog in the analogy? We are. (laughs) Okay. Excellent point though. He's right. He's right. You you, you turn a blind eye to change that happens slowly. Okay. So, R&D expenditure, sales and marketing and profit. What do you think? It's a good business, huh? 20% profit on revenue quarter after quarter. It's a very nice business. But we have to have the prices so high because of all the R&D we're spending on. What do you think? If we didn't have this much price being so high for the drugs, we wouldn't have all that R&D. No, it doesn't fit the graph. Actually, in fact, the the premium paid on drugs in the united states alone versus the rest of the world that difference exceeds the entire global r&d budget for the entire industry so when people say the us is subsidizing r&d even if we paid for all of the r&d there's still extra profit coming out of the united states okay well here i wanted to show you the profit margins on you know usually double digit profit margins it's like the second or third most profitable sector after like usually oil and natural gas is a pharmaceutical industry. So when people talk about risk, I think, in the industry, there certainly is risk. If you made a company selling whatever thing you invented in your lab, I have a high likelihood that you will fail. But when you're talking about these companies with huge portfolios of drug compounds and the ability to test them relentlessly, and once they get a success, the ability to test that relentlessly, um, I think you really mitigate the risk. Risk is across a portfolio of compounds, not just the one compound. Okay. Now, when the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approves drugs, some drugs operate via novel mechanisms of action, and some drugs operate via next-in-class or me-too mechanism of action. Can you name a novel drug? Pablo gets the win. I guess it was <coughs> the first cyclin-4,6 kinase, cyclin kinase inhibitor, wasn't it not? Yeah. Can you name a me-too drug in that same class? A bemacyclib, And then... Ribocyclib, palbocyclib, abemocyclib, okay. All right, anyone else, another category? Okay, good, novel, imatinib, what else? Name all the me-tos, panatinib, basutinib, but if if a lay person heard you talk, they think you're just making up sounds. (laughs) Okay, so all that R and D, we find if you look through all of the drugs that are approved, 40% are novel, 60% are next in class. Is it harder to develop a novel drug or a next in class drug? What do you think biologically biologically this is like this is the equivalent of being the explorer who found North America you're you're sailing in an uncharted sea you think you're gonna fall off the map and boom you land some land and this is like somebody who's revising a city map of New York and you update a manhole cover because you already have a good idea what you want to hit and the target and everything you just have to do a drug screen so I think it's a lot easier to do this and But the first question you may have is, are the price of these two categories distinguishable? Are novel drugs priced higher? And the answer is they're not priced higher, as we showed in this gem oncology paper a few years ago. Drugs are approved on the basis of response rate, progression-free survival, and OS. We didn't talk about response rate. Is response rate a time-to-event endpoint? When you look at response rate, do you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve or response rate? No. Response rate is just a percent of patients whose tumors shrink 30% on how many scans? Two scans on two scans. You need the confirmatory scan. If you don't do the confirmatory scan, like Clovis Oncology, you go belly up. You you have a big problem. They're not gonna give you that, because Resist 1.1 says you gotta get a confirmatory scan to document response. Okay, more than 30%, Uh, is that a lot? Is that a meaningful 30%? Was it picked for a good reason? No, it's arbitrary. Okay, so there are drugs that are approved on the basis of response rate, a third. Drugs that are approved based on a time to event endpoint, like a PFS, DFS, RFS kind of thing, about a third. And drugs approved on the basis of overall survival quality of life, about a third. This is what we did, you know, I guess like four or five years ago now. Has it, is it about the same? A third, a third, a third. Drugs approved based on response rate, PFS and OS. Oh, these days there's more PFS and response rate? So PFS is taking off even more. Um, And then the question is, is there a difference in price? Which of these three endpoints should be priced the highest if pricing were rational? OS. And OS is actually priced about $100,000 per year of therapy. PFS is about $100,000 per year of therapy. And response rate drugs were $160,000 per year of therapy, which kind of defied The rational pricing consideration. And here's a graph where we plot for all of the drugs improved on the basis of survival and all of the drugs approved on the basis of progression-free survival, we plot the change in progression-free survival as a relative improvement, a percent change between the two arms. I know it's not absolute, it's relative. And the same thing for overall survival. Um, And then we plot the drug price per year of therapy. So the hypothesis here is that an drug that, you know, markedly improves overall survival should cost a lot more than the drug with a very marginal change of overall survival. So there's this, this line should be going upward and then the R-squared should be very high, suggesting the data points closely cluster the line and thus efficacy substantively explains price. The R-squared is 0.13 and 0.16. Okay, What is the difference between R and R-squared? The R is the correlation coefficient. The R squared is the coefficient of determination. The R squared has a nice intuitive meaning. The R squared tells you what percent of the variability in drug price is explained by the variability in PFS. Only 13% of the variability in drug price is explained by how good a drug is in terms of PFS. Only 16% of the variability in price is explained by improvements in overall survival. That is a very little bit of the price explained by that. And actually, I don't think the beta coefficient is significant or anything like that. But the equation would like, literally, in lay words, be read like this. You get $80,000 for making a drug that doesn't do anything to your overall survival. And then for every percent you improve overall survival beyond 0%, we kick you an extra 900 bucks. But you get $80,000 just for coming on the market. That's kind of what the equation would tell you so we conclude in this paper, the cost of drugs is not explained by novelty, cost of R&D, the regulatory endpoint, or the percent improvement in the endpoint. Well, we did this little project where we looked up the word precision oncology in the entire biomedical literature, and we made a big stack of every article we could find that used that word year by year. And we made it. All of the articles that used precision oncology from 2005 to 2010, all of the ones that used it in 2013, and all the ones that used it in 2016, the first thing we note, is the use is on the rise because to get the same kind of size pile I had to take all these years and put them together and this I get you know I type in precision oncology my browser explodes you know these, okay everyone's talk about it but we've color-coded when they use the word PO precision oncology what do they mean in 2005 to 2010 53% just meant a targeted therapy like Gleevec Seven percent meant the use of NGS or other omics to guide therapy in a tissue agnostic fashion. Twenty-six percent meant the use of a biomarker in a tissue type group, such as the use of EML4-ALK uh, to, describe, to pre- prescribe crizotinib or um, EGFR exon 19 mutations to prescribe erlotinib, but only within non-small cell lung cancer. So that's the use of a biomarker to delineate a subgroup, and then. Um, Some people said the use of circulating tumor DNA to identify recurrence. That's the green. Fast forward to 2013. Now, the gray slice is on the rise. Biomarker to delineate subgroup. Now everyone's talking about biomarkers, KRAS and colon cancer, EGFR and lung, all these biomarkers, boom, ROS1, boom, boom, boom. That's the gray. Meanwhile, targeted therapy, that's declined in popularity. Nobody's saying imatinib is that precise anymore, or at least they're not using it that often in the in the in the literature and now we see the creation of mouse or fly avatars to test drug that's where you take your cancer cells and stick it in a bunch of mice and you do like live ex vivo screening and then you know what will work in your patient And if the patient is still alive at the end of the screening you can test the drug in the patient but maybe the time it takes to screen it, it may be too late uh, and then NGS to identify targetable alterations the foundation mess is growing And now fast forward to 2016, now only thing we're talking about is NGS or omics to guide therapy, other omic testing. Targeted therapy is no longer, simply by itself, is no longer precision oncology. And the use of a biomarker to delineate subgroups, that's also fading. So, this graph looks a lot like clonal selection. This is the founder clone. Then he undergoes point mutation, mutational testing. But then, if you fast forward it to 2018, it would be a new pie, and the pie would say precision oncology, and it's just one slice that says everything that works, and not precision oncology is anything that doesn't work. That's how you define it. But the reason I bring this up is because I want to make a point about interpreting clinical trials. Who read this paper? It is in JAMA, Association of Broad-Based Genome Sequencing with Survival Among Patients with Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer in Community Oncology Setting. Carolyn Presley and colleagues, who we interviewed here for a job a few years ago and gave a good talk, and Carrie Gross, Yale University. Here's what they did they looked at the flat iron data set and they looked at community practices where, if you had non small cell lung cancer, you underwent EGFR ALK uh, testing. And in the other arm, they looked at community practices where you underwent um, broad NGS for hundreds of genes and they show in this paper that if you undergo broad NGS you found more mutations and you put people on more drugs but in a propensity score matched analysis there was no difference in outcome between those two arms but if you didn't propensity score match it the group that got broad NGS did better what does that mean if you don't propensity score match it but if you do propensity score match based on the severity of illness and the propensity to receive broad-based NGS among patients, that effect vanishes. The people in whom it's done, they're gonna do better because they have better substrate going in. Which kinda makes sense. But I just wanna point out this paper is a negative paper, it's a propensity score match paper. It's actually mm, for observational studies, it's the the single best methodological study on this question, because we we have ran we don't have really robust randomized trials here. But I think like it's important to know that we do enter this kind of very bad science all the time in this space. This is just one example where if you look at patients, if you took a lot of patients and you sequenced them broadly, let's say all the patients where you're thinking about a phase one clinical trial, you sequence, and you put them in two buckets, patients who can be matched to a drug for a phase one trial or patients who are not matched to any therapy and they have to get a phase one trial for an agnostic drug. For instance, if I have a, fgfr mutation i maybe there's a special phase one trial for me for an fgfr inhibitor but let's say i don't have an fgfr mutation then i got to go on a phase one of i don't know some some terrible cytotoxic drug or you know or, or some promiscuous tki or something like that so then they say patients who have matched phase one trials and get put on those do better than ones who get put on therapies that they're not matched to okay What's the problem, the the philosophical problem with this kind of comparison? See, the people who get unmatched therapy, what mutations do they have? They have BRAF mutations, they have EGFR, they have ALKs, they have ROS1s. They have mutations for which you have drugs. The people who are not matched, what are they getting stuck with? The P53 deletions, the RAS mutations, some very nasty mutations are getting in there. There's a reason why you haven't drug RAS. It's a very big protein, has like no binding pocket. You can't even put a molecule on it. It's not very hard to drug. So what you're really, you're comparing two different groups of people. When you look at a comparison, you have to ask yourself, what is the counterfactual? This is the epidemiology question. When you say people did, you know, people who had characteristic A who did X, this is what happened to them. The counterfactual is people who had characteristic A who did not do X. It's not always people who had characteristic not A a different group of people you have to ask the counterfactual what would have happened to these people had you not done the thing okay that's what we all do in epidemiology and that's what randomization does except it uses like we force that into the system and that's what these people are doing by propensity score matching they're saying had it you know i want a group of people who underwent broad-based ngs and i want to have a propensity score match control group who just underwent egfr and ALK. that means of all the people who just underwent egfr and ALK, i want to pull out the people who otherwise look like these people with the exception that they did not get the broad-based genomic testing Every time you read any paper, or whatever it may be in oncology, you have to ask yourself, do they make a convincing case that this is a sufficient counterfactual? Because I could, to, to drive it to absurdity, I could say I gave patients with ROS1 lung cancer, crizotinib, and I'm comparing it to patients with pancreatic cancer. Look how much better they do. Okay, you would say that's ridiculous. That's not the right control group. That's not the counterfactual. Similarly here, having these nasty mutations versus having these mutations for which they're nice drugs that were developed in the last 15 years probably different groups of people. The real question is, what would have happened to these people had they not got the drug, had they gotten a cytotoxic? I think there are some principles of oncology that we have forgotten in recent years, but they evolve for good reason. Because now, if I were the medical writer writing this, I would write, um, even though overall survival was not improved, deep response rate and improved PFS likely represent meaningful clinical benefit of unprecedented value. Uh, And then I would say something like, the only reason overall survival was failed to improve was because of confounding by post-protocol therapy and long post-protocol survival. And overall survival may no longer be a reasonable endpoint and quality of life may be impossible to measure in patients with metastatic melanoma and thus any drug that deepens response rate and hopefully in the future, minimal residual disease should be approved and used (laughs) from birth to prevent melanoma. That's what I'll say in the future. (laughs) Okay, that's the difference. It's the same data. they just spun it 100% on the head. Now, we write this paper, combining drugs and extending treatment. This is Bashal and I wrote a few years ago in um, Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology. The OS is not met with palbociclib. And what do they say? Now they say, doesn't matter. And here's the other point I want to make. When you say, this is the last point, confounded by post-protocol therapy. This is what people are saying. They're saying that, imagine this is the PFS 1, 2, 3, and then the patient dies, maybe, something like this. This is the control arm. They're saying that, you know, we give palbociclib with letrozole here, we have a better PFS than just letrozole. But in order for overall survival to be the same, what must be the case is, things must not go so well afterwards versus if you had, you know, just gotten letrozole. All right. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. we like to know what you're thinking. What could be better? What topics could we cover? Um, How can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.